0: Hello, everyone. My name is Paula Gate and I'm a professor of international law at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva.
1: And Zachary Douglas, also a professor at the same institution.
0: And today we are in Clarence, close to Montreux, uh, at a special place with a special person.
1: We have, Just to describe uh, what we're looking at, we're looking at over the mountains, over the lake, with the birds chirping in the background. We have all sorts of noises that you'll notice Uh, during the podcast, because we're recording live at the home of Professor Georges Abissab.
0: So, Professor Abissab, I think that the first thing that we can ask is uh, how would you describe your approach to international law?
2: Well, before you speak about my approach to international law, I have to speak of my approach to law in general. I came to law, in fact, on philosophy. I wanted to study philosophy, and my father told me, if you study philosophy, the only career you can have will be as a schoolmeister. (laughs) Schoolmeister, yes. And he had done that himself, and he didn't have the patience of teaching, so he went into business. And he said, what are you interested in? I said, I'm interested in literature, uh, in public affairs, etc. What do you want to do? I said, I want to be a writer, a journalist, someone who deals with public issues. And then say, why don't you study law? Because Voltaire said, le droit est la culture de l'homme honnête. The So I went into law to study, not to study law as a profession, as a technical profession to become a practicing lawyer, but as a way to understand how society is run, uh, what are the means of achieving collectively what a society feels that it has to be done. So, in a way, my entry into law, or my study of law, originally, and it stayed that way, is that law is the instrument that the collectivity, the society has to put its house in order and to to express its collective identity, in a way. So... When I came to international law, I came with this approach. Uh, I I was really, before I started studying law, I was already in what can be called the sociological school of law. And, And that has been always my approach. That law is a social product of the society that produces it consciously or unconsciously. And in fact, it is the way the society develops its identity and and the way it lives as a community, as a whole.
0: Is it the same for a society made primarily of states or the sociological approach makes more sense in a society made by human beings?
2: Well, of course, uh, (laughs) as I said, international law is first law. And when you start studying law, you understand that there are certain ways and means of doing things and you have to to play according to these rules. These are the technical aspects. But in a way, when it comes to to the community of nations, you have to use the same instruments we have developed for For the the smaller for the national on the international level and and that's what we do and and that creates the specificity of international law because the degree of sense of community is not the same (laughs) the larger it is it becomes diffuse it becomes different and so forth George a
1: more personal question because Mm -hmm. you've spent your Career being identified as a voice from the South, but at the same time, you've entered the, the Western pantheon of, of great international jurists, and really the question is whether or not you've ever, there's ever been a tension between these two hats or these two perceptions of
2: Professor Georges Abissard. I always respected and admired great pieces of thought and the heritage we had even at school was basically the western heritage plus some arab heritage but uh, for the practical studies we did it is the heritage of, of the west eh? however i also try to master as much as possible the cult- the arab culture which i think uh, To some extent, I succeeded to do that. Now, in law, when I started studying law, of course, I studied the regular courses, which was, to a great extent, based on the French system. But I think I could see the different dimensions of things, much more, because I had a window open on another way of looking at things. There are a lot of international laws. the heritage we have, is very rich, is based, I mean, you go from the Greeks to, to, to the Romans, to, to the medieval, etc. But from the medieval on, uh, you have a parallel Arab culture. I can't say that I knew, for example, the Hindu culture or other, but at least... That part I, I knew. So I tried, and in studying, you, you, you have to take exams. <laughs> you are in Western universities. You have to, to learn and, and, and to see the good parts of it. I mean, it, it's really a, a very rich heritage. The problem with international law, eh? some people say it's a primitive system. And I refuse that because primitive is the adjective that attaches to thought. And as far as thought, international law is very advanced. The problem is the executive aspect of it. Who can apply it? And and this depends on the degree of Consciousness of the sense of community, uh, which is very vague on the international level. So I learned all that. But at the same time, I tried to explain or to to project using the same categories and the same concepts. I, I tried to project a vision coming from the outside. But, but, but I didn't reject completely. On the contrary, I tried to use as much as possible these intellectual constructs and rich concepts to project an attitude different. And I always respected, <laughs> I have several mentors. I could mention three of them. One was Abdallah Larian, who really, the one who interested me in studying international law when, when I was in my second degree of law. We had a big professor who also <laughs> I liked, but the, the one who interested me was a small professor assistant who came from America. The other was in the French tradition. And later, Professor Baxter at Harvard, and Robbie Jennings in Cambridge. The three of them, I didn't share their political attitude because they were conservatives. (laughs) But I adored them. I respected very much their ideas, their ways of doing things. I think they were very good international, great international lawyers. So in a way, you, you, you can partake of a certain tradition without necessarily defending or not opposing, but being critical of certain aspects of it. And you criticize it by the same logic of the system. Uh, So I was more of a dissenter than a revolution. Uh, In my first life as intellectual life as an economist, I mean, the example is Keynes. Keynes was a dissenter within the... Tradition of economics, eh? but he was not a revolution. And I tried (laughs) to respect the forms of of dialogue, of discourse, rather than using a completely new discourse.
0: Can I go back to this kind of being um, trying to from inside a change in things? Yes. There is something that I wanted to ask you about when you were a judge at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and you participated in the drafting of the famous decision in Tadic on the jurisdiction of the tribunal. And in particular, what was at stake was whether or not the criminal tribunal itself could revise the Security Council resolution that had established
2: the Tribunal. Yes.
0: And this was a quite important you know, decision that the Tribunal had to take, whether or not one could review the legality of the Security Council uh, decisions. Mm-hmm. And you contributed very much to that part of the decision. And, Tana, you said that you could revise you know, the legality of the Security mm-hmm. Council decisions. Not everybody would agree with this. Why was it important? for you to say something like that?
2: Because I was, <laughs> you know, it was a period where so-called the Security Council revived. But it was a period, of course, of the takeover bid of the Americans of the whole world, you know. It, it was political also. Because it was 1995,
0: no, for it, our listeners. yeah
2: after the breakdown yes. of the wall, etc., George Bush, the father, said about the first war, uh, Gulf War, that this is the first war for international law to push the Iraqi out of Kuwait, etc. It was also the end of history. But... <laughs> and, and end of history and all that. So it, the idea was that the Security Council became... The Deus Ex Machina. That's what Jose Alvarez wrote in an article in the American Journal. But the Security Council is not Deus Ex Machina. It's an organ which is limited by its constitution, which is the Charter of the United Nations. It, doesn't, it can't do anything because that's exactly what the idea is.
0: Uh, many today would uh, still claim you know, that the Security Council yeah, can do yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> and and uh, I wrote an article at that time in which I criticized this idea and sometimes say we return to the original scheme of the Charter and we forget the first 45 years. In the article I wrote, you cannot forget history. <laughs> uh, during the these 45 years, many things happened and so forth. But, well, anyway, we come back to the Tavich affair. There I used, you know, my first book is about preliminary ob- objections. And basically, it was not only the preliminary objection, it's the subtitle is more telling. It's it should. Des notions fondamentales de procédure et de leurs moyens de mise en œuvre. Okay. And, and there, this idea of incidental jurisdiction, you know, that you have a point on which turns the jurisdiction of the tribunal, but it is not the measure within the measure ambit of the jurisdiction of the tribunal. Can it deal with it or not? And, you know, that was exactly the point which the American Supreme Court used in the first decision to establish its power of judicial review of government acts. The Macbury versus Madison. They were not in, in, in the shot of the Supreme Court. Then there was no idea of constitutional review. Nor in the Constitution itself. Yes. So, they found it through that. And I used exactly, I didn't cite Malbury versus Madison, eh, because it's an internal case, etc. But the same logic, eh, that the court has jurisdiction over subjects which are incidental, though not within its main jurisdiction, but necessary to decide its own jurisdiction.
0: Yeah, of course, then politically there was also the attempt to put boundaries to the powers of the Security Council and assert the supremacy of law. Yes, so
2: it was about that. And then I later on wrote an article called uh, in Vera Golan's uh, Festschrift, the Security Council." Unbound by law.
0: We will check the exact title of this paper and put it in the show notes of the podcast. Okay.
2: Perhaps,
1: Georges, another example of trying to reform the system from within uh, your role as a, uh, an arbitrator in investment cases. Because just to give the listeners a bit of background, you, you worked for, as a researcher, for Professors Solon Baxter in their Harvard draft, I think, yeah. right around the beginning. Then, you, of course, you're involved in many of the debates about um, Permanent sovereignty over natural resources and rights of self-determination and the right of states to choose their own political and, and, and social system and so on. So, how, how did you, how do you reconcile those things? And then in, in, the, in your role as a, an arbitrator in investment disputes, how did you see your role and how did you see the, the law develop uh, in, in those years?
2: Well, frankly, you cannot discuss this subject only as a legal question. You have to take into consideration the evolution of the world economy in general and its reflections on international law. It was clear that if you look at the whole spectrum, in the old days, countries which were considered as mavericks act illegally or irresponsibly. They were brought back to, to their senses by military means. And in fact, the institution of diplomatic protection was considered as a way of civilizing the law. <laughs> that instead of going by, by force, you will try to use diplomatic means, that's diplomatic protection, And uh, later, after the famous incidents of blockading and bombarding Venezuela's port at the beginning of the century, because it defaulted on its public debt, came in 1907 the Drago Porter Convention, which says that if they accept to go to arbitration, you don't use force against Okay, interesting. It's called Drago Porter. At that time, Drago was a foreign minister of Argentina and he refused to ratify this because he wanted absolutely to put that they had to pass by national courts first. (laughs) And that was not included. So that is a long problem uh, we had with us for a long time. And after the war, Second World War, there were a series of nationalizations. In, was it in Nicaragua? Yes, at the beginning, when they tried to nationalize United Fruit Company. Then we had the famous case, the Iranian, Musadik's Iranian nationalization. This went to the court because the British considered that the concession is a treaty, and the court considered it a mere contract. Even Lord McNair, who was judge, voted for absence of jurisdiction. But then he wrote an article about general principles, etc. Anyway, they tried to get it by national jurisdiction. For example, the famous case is called the Rosemary case, where in Aden, I think, at that time, a a British colony, a British judge considered that a cargo of oil was, in fact, the oil which was extracted was the property of the company. So in a way, they considered that the oil underground was already owned by the company, but that was resisted, and in other courts, it was not accepted, and so forth. So they try to come to this idea of the A-National Court contract, uh, thus subject directly to international law. Oh, <laughs> even someone who became president of the International Court of Justice, Steve Schreiber, wrote an article saying, Pacta Sunt Cervanda is a principle of international law, and it applies on the contract, so it is subject to international law. But Pacta Sunt Servanda is a rule of all systems of law, not only of international law. And we end up with what we end up with exit. And again, all all these efforts were to exclude to exclude national jurisdiction, all of them, and. To instead install an international jurisdiction, status mixes jurisdiction, whatever it is. But we are returning back with that to the old system of capitulations. That when you have a problem (laughs) with between a foreigner and one of the privileged citizens of the senior I don't want, to, not all of them are superpowers. We will give even the smallest uh, European country, I mean, European countries before, Western countries, it has to be judged by outside the country, not even passing by the jurisdiction of the country. So, how can you try to moderate such a system? The system became so slanted, and then you had a lot of cases. And a lot of so-called doctrines, like uh, legitimate expectations, like, uh, in in, in fact, uh, fair and uh, equitable solutions, and so forth. All all these, in fact, to what extent do they differ from a well-conceived concept of minimum standard? I don't see the difference. And in fact, when the agreement between United States, Canada and... Uh, it was NAFTA. NAFTA. NAFTA at the very end, I mean, considered that they, they are equivalent to, to, to the same.
0: Doctrine. It's two standards, the same.
2: Yes, mm. yes. So, in a way, and there is the personal interest which comes in, because you see in exit, usually the state accepts in a treaty beforehand the jurisdiction of exit. While the investor does not have to accept anything, when he has a grievance against the state, he produces a case. And in the letter producing the case, he accepts the jurisdiction. If you look at at exit agreement, it says it has to be accepted by both. OK, so you think it's, it's really fair and Equal, equivalent, yes. even. But in reality, it's not. Because usually, in the great majority of cases, the state accepts and the investor accepts only, only if he has a grievance. So he, he always pushes the button. The result is what? That most of the legal profession considers that to get work, you have to... To please the investor. To, yes, exactly. <laughs> so that he can push the button. <laughs> exactly.
0: And pay, <laughs> and pay you, and you know, so, your so service. So the system
2: is one handed.
0: Yes.
2: And, and we had a big, big discussion in, in the Institute of International Law about that, because uh, we had a resolution on that subject. Uh, they say, but this is outside the arbitration. The arbitration itself is perfect. The system is perfect, is equal. Say yes, but its use is not equal. <laughs> and and that really pushes it, it gives a slant in favour of investors. So I have said that in, in several cases, appointed by paria states like Argentina, like Venezuela. Like Ecuador, because this, nobody wants to <laughs> to be associated with them, because <laughs> it means that he will not get custom, and and and, and that's it. I mean, it's it's a a, a corruption. I would say there is a, an element of corruption. There are very few people who try to steady the balance, like like Zachary, like Brigitte Stern.
0: We're running towards the end of the interview, although we could continue forever with this beautiful view of the lake, this wonderful uh, no, room where we're sitting together with Professor Abisab. But there is something that I would like, uh, love I love very much of the Hague lecture. At the end, I mean, it comes an anecdote that you mention. You mentioned an anecdote about Picasso, because yeah. apparently... It is reported that uh, an admirer of, the, of, of Picasso said to him, uh, Maestro, where do you go for all this? And then mm. Picasso has answered, Well, uh, really, I don't look for, I just find. And yeah. then you added, well, uh, what uh, is not exactly like that? Because mm, before no. coming to find the things, uh, one should have developed uh, what you call a grid research, a yeah. search grid. I mean, what has been uh, for you, no? the search grid, because you say, I mean, until this comes automatically that one can easily find, one should have (laughs) studied a lot, in a way.
2: Picasso said, I don't talk for, I find, as if it comes spontaneously. Exactly. But in order to get to the point where your eye can legally x-ray a situation to identify what is relevant. Legally, You have to train it for a long time. Picasso started by painting regular pictures. And then he started to make them more symbolic and then he bro- broke them. The eh? personalities on and so forth. So he deconstructs them to reconstruct them according to his View. So Picasso started, and, and, and that's how, I, I mean, to, 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 to have a kind of an eye that can penetrate the facades and identify, that is the legal reasoning. And to develop legal reasoning, it's not enough to know about law. My first professor, the one I mentioned at the beginning, Abdallah Lerian, told me uh, he was in the International Law Commission. He said, you know, there are people who know a lot about international law, but there are few lawyers. (laughs) 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 Meaning who think the way a lawyer should, who have this process, mental process of reasoning uh, and what is relevant in that reasoning, and what is not relevant, and so forth. And, and that takes a long time. It's not simply knowing the facts, or knowing what others say about the rules of the law. It, it's how you make sense of it. Is uh, it the
0: main lesson that you try to pass on to your many students?
2: Yes. I, I mean, modestly, I would say, I was a much better teacher than anything else. The writings, the practical. You're too modest now. Eh? No, You're no, no. I'm, 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 I I liked teaching, and I felt a great shock of severance when they told me because you are you have X years, you have to stop teaching. Yeah. For me, that was really a catastrophe, and I was very popular with my students. Because I try not to ditch knowledge to them, but to think ha, at a loud voice with them. Say, Here is the problem. How do we go about it? The, is it this, is it that, etc. I, I have a friend with whom I taught. He was the director of the Vatha Marshall Seminar and I was the deputy director in At The Hague. It's a seminar for middle middle career legal officers, which was held at The Hague every year for six weeks. In in the 60s, when that was very important for new new states and so forth, it's Torkel Opsal, he's uh, Norwegian. And he said, "Your, your method of teaching is to bring problems to a higher level of confusion. <laughs> 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 because you, you discuss with them things, etc. Well, here is, you have a treaty, you have a clear solution, perhaps, but is this the real solution? Shouldn't we do this? Shouldn't we? And if you think with your audience, you, you get them into the process, rather than simply people who are receiving receiving. But what you've always said is that one has
1: to find the solution to the problem at the yes. end of the exercise, because so yes. much of yes. academic work these days is identifying a problem yeah. and not doing anything about solving it. No,
2: no. You, you, you have, to, of course, to and also to, to show that on certain things there is no clear-cut solution. Mm-hmm. That there may be, I mean, a range of left to To the one who decides, to the decision maker. So that, that's a little bit how I spent my 40 years as an active teacher, which remains the most important part of my life. My intellectual uh, This
0: is very inspiring and um, thank you so much for this interview, it has been a real great joy to be with you today and I mean, uh, as I said, in one week time from now you will be turning 90 and what a life in international law you had. And I'm sure this interview will be inspiring to many, many generations of international lawyers No.
1: Thank you so much, George, for your time. I thank you. I remember having a similar conversation 10 years ago for your 80th birthday and probably 10 years before that. So may the tradition continue.
0: (laughs) Yes, may the tradition continue. Thank you so much
2: again. Thank you.